Caddy 2 is, it's a really cool design, definitely inspired by a lot of the struggles and limitations of V1. Just some of the major changes or features that came out of the first version were things like the config API. That was actually one of the earliest feature requests. I think Kelsey Hightower opened that way back in the day. That's a huge thing. So you have like these online dynamic config updates with an HTTP endpoint and kind of a REST API. The module system was a huge improvement over previous like plugins because modules can extend Caddy to do literally anything in V2. So a lot of like first class design decisions went into V2 that were inspired by the needs I knew of from V1. Big thanks to our partners Linode, Fastly, and LaunchDarkly. We love Linode. They keep it fast and simple. Check them out at linode.com slash changelog. Our bandwidth is provided by Fastly. Learn more at fastly.com and get your feature flags powered by LaunchDarkly. Get a demo at launchdarkly.com. This episode is brought to you by Sourcegraph. Sourcegraph is universal code search to let you move fast, even in big code bases. Here's CTO and co-founder Byung Lu explaining how Sourcegraph helps you to get into that ideal state of flow in coding. The ideal state of software development is really being in that state of flow. It's that state where all the relevant context and information that you need to build whatever feature or bug that you're focused on uh, building or fixing at the moment, that's all readily available. Now the question is, how do you get into that state where, you know, you don't know anything about the code necessarily that you're going to modify. That's where Sourcegraph comes in. And so what you do with Sourcegraph is you you jump into Sourcegraph. It provides a single uh, portal into that universe of code. You search for the string literal, the pattern, whatever it is you're looking for. You dive right into the, the specific part of code that you want to understand. And then you have all these code navigation capabilities, jump to definition, find references that work across repository boundaries that work without having to clone the code to your local machine and set up and mess around with editor config and, and all that. Everything is just designed to be seamless and to aid in that task of you know code spelunking or, or source diving. And once you've acquired that understanding, then you can hop back in your editor, dive right back into that flow state of, hey, all the information I need is readily accessible. Let me just focus on writing the code that implements the feature or fixes the bug that I'm working on. All right, learn more at sourcegraph.com and also check out their bi-monthly virtual series called DevTool Time, covering all things DevTools at sourcegraph.com slash devtooltime. Let's do it. It's go time. Welcome to Go Time, your source for diverse discussions from around the Go community. If you like Go Time, you might enjoy our new show, Ship It, featuring conversations focused on ops, infra, code, real world experiments on our open source platform. What's not to love? Check it out at changelog.com slash ship it, or you'll find it in your favorite podcast app. Okay, here we go. everybody and welcome to go time today i am joined by matt holt to talk about caddy v2 matt how are you doing hey john doing good thanks for having me today thanks for joining us all right matt we're going to be talking about mostly caddy v2 and the sort of transition and things that led us to that but can we start with a little bit of background information basically what is caddy and like sort of where did it originate you know what caused you to build the first version yeah so i was in undergrad at byu 
and I was taking a network programming class. And I, I think at that point, I, I was just fed up with the options that were, I was making a lot of little sites for work and for school and just personal projects. And I was kind of fed up with the options that were out there. There were basically two, Apache and Nginx. And I mean, there were a few others, Lighty, and I've looked at some of those. And they're fine, but I wanted something different. And where I just started working on it and I was getting into Go, I'd been into Go for a few years at that point already. And so I figured, you know, Go has all the right stuff for this, for a web server. So I'm going to write one. So I just kind of did it, did it on nights and weekends as an undergraduate student and just put it out there for people to, to check out. And I guess they liked it for the most part. But as we'll maybe talk about later, some people didn't. <laughs> I think that's... Uh kind of true of anything with success like if you make something that nobody hates that usually means that there's nobody who's going to like it a lot caddy scratched a few itches that i had and um, i think it turned out pretty well rounded all right so when you were setting this up i know like one of the big things that anybody who's seen caddy in the early stages would have noticed is that it used secure you know https pretty much from the get-go maybe not the initial version but pretty early on yeah the initial version actually didn't you're right they started working on it in 2014 it was released in early 2015, and Let's Encrypt went into public beta at the end of 2015, like December-ish. And um, a member of the Let's Encrypt team reached out to me and asked about some integration. I think I had heard about Let's Encrypt, and I, I was like, oh, that'd be cool. I want to do that. And then they reached out about when they, when they saw me put that on the website about adding that in. And so that came out six months later, but Caddy had it on day one of their public beta. Uh, so that was definitely one of its earliest features, but that wasn't something I had in mind going into this, but it's definitely like its flagship feature now. Like looking back on it, does it feel like that timing was part of the reason that Caddy did so, you know, took off and did so well? Yeah, I think timing was a huge part of it. Just the, the whole push to HTTPS and the whole, all the hype around Let's Encrypt and the Acme protocol and also the Go language. Go started having its first conferences like Go, Go for Con in 2014-ish. 2015. So it was, it was, everything was just very like, it kind of joined the hype train at the right time. But I don't think Caddy would catch on right now these days. Why do you think that's the case? I got a lot more saturated. There's a lot more web servers now, a lot more specialized web server tooling, and a lot fewer people are using web servers because of serverless, which actually use servers. They're just, <laughs> you just don't have control over them, which I think, anyway. So there's that, and there's a lot of the specialized toolings for like service meshes and um, microservices and things and data planes. And so you've got all these variety of tooling and you've got a lot of integrated systems that were old, like legacy applications that use older web servers. And people are motivated to change their web server. They would only use a new server for a new project usually. But also a lot of language runtimes or standard libraries, I should say, come with web servers these days too, like Node and Rust and other trendy new languages. So if you're writing applications in those, you don't need a web server, typically like a separate one. They're still handy. Like I think a lot of people will still use them, but yeah, I don't think Caddy would catch on these days as much. No, that makes sense. You say that it would have been hard to take off and you know, the timing and stuff all worked out pretty well. I know like Let's Encrypt, like you said, did have a lot of hype, which was 
probably a huge huge contributor to to helping out is let's encrypt like are you still kind of locked into that as the one https option or is that or, or do you offer other options no so that's a really cool thing so let's encrypt is just the implementation of the acme protocol they're they're kind of the initial pioneer implementation the acme protocol is actually it's a it's rfc 555 which implemented properly allows you to automate your tls certificates so anyone can do this you can do this at home in your garage or whatever but let's encrypt is a fully publicly trusted certificate authority and that's why that's a big deal there are other publicly trusted CAs that also implement the Acme protocol now, and Caddy is compatible with any of the Acme certificate authorities. Nice. So Zero SSL, for example, is Caddy's executive sponsor, and they they're an Acme certificate authority. And so Caddy actually defaults now to Let's Encrypt and Zero SSL. Uh, so if Let's Encrypt is down, it can get a Zero SSL, vice versa. And so that that's pretty cool. This. Like the RFC 8555 you mentioned, that wasn't what Caddy was using initially, was it? No, that RFC didn't technically exist. There was this Let's Encrypt's kind of experimental implementation, kind of dubbed V1, Acme V1, which is no longer active, but it was kind of similar uh, to, to Acme V2. It's definitely recognizable. It's I, I only was fairly confident of that one, only because I recently had a server that Basically, it lost its cert, and I couldn't figure out why it wasn't renewing, and then I bothered to go. It's something I like haven't looked at in a long time, and I looked, mm-hmm. and I had a really old version of Caddy running, and I'm like, oh, I should probably upgrade this at this point. Yeah, Let's Encrypt is in beta for a long time. So Yeah, I was going to say, I found out the hard way that sometimes running a really old version of something isn't the best choice in that case. I don't even think it was a V1 of Caddy. I think it might have been like a, a V0 version. All right, so you're currently on V2. What sort of motivated you to, you know, because going from a V1 to a V2 is a big step for pretty much any project, especially one with as many users as Caddy has. What motivated you to make these presumably breaking changes and, and make that step to a V2? Yeah, good question. So these major version buffs, especially for server-side software, are kind of scary. <laughs> and uh, so I don't know if you remember or recall about five or so years ago, I was also on this show after the release of Caddy V. Not V1, but like some pre-V1 version, whatever the first major releases were. And so it's been six years or so since then, and a lot has changed on the internet and in the Go language and in the tooling. And we've got a lot of feedback, too. I was just looking today. We've closed over 2,300 issues in the Caddy repository. We have a really good like cycling rate of going through issues and pull requests. We have less than 100 open at any given time, typically. And um, most of them are feature requests. So I think just a lot of community feedback and seeing how people are using it and seeing the, the needs of people. The Caddy, like the V1 design was very much kind of a toy, honestly. Like I set it up for my personal projects and it was it was fun to experiment with it, but it definitely struggled to be useful to a broad audience. and had a lot of limitations, especially in like the enterprise or like the really big services scene. So there were a whole lot of factors. And I think three or four years ago, I was like, yeah, I'm going to make a Caddy V2 and we'll solve all these open issues and problems. But it took until 2019 to actually get around to doing it. So could you ever imagine yourself sort of foreseeing what Caddy V2 is now without having built the V1? No, probably not. Caddy 2 is 
it's a really cool design, um, definitely inspired by a lot of the struggles and limitations of V1. I mean, just some of the, the major changes or features there that, that came out of the, the first version were things like the, the config API. That was actually one of the earliest feature requests. I think Kelsey Hightower opened that way back in the day. And um, I was like, yeah, Caddy V1 was designed to do dynamic config loading, no problem. Turns out it's not. <laughs> so that was one of the things that got pushed back to V2. That's a huge thing. So you have like these online dynamic config updates uh, with an HTTP endpoint and kind of a REST API. The module system was a huge improvement over previous like plugins because modules can extend Caddy to do like basically anything, literally anything in V2. Whereas before it was like, eh, it was kind of kind of hacked together. Honestly, plugins came later, you know, they were an afterthought. So a lot of like first class design decisions went into V2 that were inspired by the needs that I knew of from V1. And just to clarify for anybody listening, when you say modules, you mean like plugins essentially? Yeah, good point. So yes, plugins. Plugins that extend Caddy's config structure. That was a whole nother thing too, was, you know, we had this Caddy file that was an easy way to configure a web server. A lot of people liked it, but it was also very limiting and very kind of confusing, quirky. So Caddy V2's native config format is JSON, which is a little trickier to use when you're writing it by hand, but it's also highly programmable and automatable. And we have this concept now of config adapters so that you can actually write your config in whatever language or format you want. And all it has to do is convert it down to JSON. Those config adapters are themselves plugins. But that JSON config structure can be extended to add functionality to your server. And those, I consider those to be the caddy modules, not to be confused with Go modules. It's one of those naming things where if two teams had talked ahead of time, somebody might've changed it, but because you don't know it's coming. I think we just ran out of words. That works too. (laughs) It is kind of hard to name things. So if somebody's writing software and they're looking at, you know, lots of feature requests like you were, and they're trying to decide whether it makes more sense to just try to implement those features in what they have versus, you know, doing a, a V2 rewrite. Because I the V2 was a complete rewrite, wasn't it? Yeah. So if somebody's trying to decide between that, like, do you have any advice for them trying to weigh the pros and cons of, you know, whether rewriting from scratch or trying to force the features into what's there? Yeah. I mean, if, if you want really good software, don't try and force it into something that isn't designed for it. <laughs> That's what I would say. Okay. It's worth it to do the rewrite. Do you think because Caddy is open source and it's not... I could be wrong, but I'm assuming paying customers wasn't like a huge part of that decision. Maybe it was, I don't know. But uh, is it different for an open source software project versus like a business where usually stopping to rewrite something in a business means no new features come out for a while and like, you know, there are business impacts there? Yeah. So we had a few businesses using V1. The upgrade path to V2 wasn't too bad. I did a little bit of, of kind of guiding along the way there for some. And that, that's fine. Yeah, did, did that answer your question? <laughs> I guess sort of. <laughs> I guess what I'm trying to figure out is it seems like in your case, doing a complete rewrite was the right choice. Like, and it worked really well for you. But I've also seen several cases where companies, especially like startups, will have like a pretty rough version and they'll be like, we're going to rewrite this. And in some ways it kind of ends up being the death of them because getting that V2 out and like sort of getting through that phase where they're not releasing as much as can be really detrimental. And I think 
as developers, we tend to underestimate how much a V2, like how much work it is to rewrite something. So like trying to figure out like whether it's worth it or not, I guess is, is, is type of advice I'm looking. Yeah. I mean, I think if you can ship it, if you can ship it, it's good. It doesn't have to be perfect. Just get something out the door. We, V2 is in beta for almost a year or like pre-beta plus beta for, yeah, for about a year. We had like a month or two of release candidates and then version 2.1, 2.2 came pretty quickly after that. We're on 2.4 now and it's very, very close to feature complete as far as I can tell. But yeah, just ship what you can when you get it done. As you get it done, let people be involved and give you feedback and form it into a really good product. Because there were a lot of decisions in V2 where I was like, well, this could kind of go either way. Like, I don't know what's best. I'm just going to choose one, put it out there and see what people say. It's in beta. You can do what you want. You can change it. So that was really helpful in shipping a new major version. No, that makes sense. I assume that means you had like a V1 that was like the stable release and then you had the V2 beta at the same time. And actually tagging V1 was a formality. I was like, I wanted to throw this away because I already had decided we're going to write V2. I guess we should tag a V1. <laughs> So I tagged a V1 just to get it out of the way and then literally started working on V2 after that. Well, I was going to ask, how was supporting customers during that transition? Like anything that you wish you'd done better or could or what would you suggest? So I had to kind of drop out of like the public issue tracker for a while because basically everything just got chalked up to, we'll fix it in V2, fix it in V2. And, but we did, we actually did. And so I told a lot of customers that too, I was like, Critical things, security, vulnerabilities, or whatever, will fix in V1. Like that's why there's like a 1.0.5, I think, was the last release, just five patches after that that 1.0 release. But for the most part, yeah, we just told our customers, yeah, it's just going into V2. Well, you can try the beta, you know. What's going on, Gophers? This episode is brought to you by Equinix Metal. If you want the choice and control of hardware with low overhead and the developer experience of the cloud, you need to check out Equinix Metal. Deploy in minutes across 18 global locations from Silicon Valley to Sydney. Visit metal.equinix.com slash just add metal and receive $100 in credit to play with. Again, metal.equinix.com slash just add metal. So what were some of the like major changes from a customer endpoint, like from their perspective when they were changing? Because you mentioned the caddy file was like the core of caddy v1 and then it went to JSON. So like from their perspective, did things get simpler? Did they get more verbose, but like more customizable or, you know, what changed there? Yeah, good question. So in my opinion, caddy is just about as easy to use, but it is definitely a more complex tool now. So you can still write a five line caddy file and do things that would take dozens of lines in another web server of config. So caddy two really is, I think, just as like easy to use as caddy one, once you know how to use it, once you know what you're doing, the configs are very simple and readable, but it is a more complicated tool because you can do more with it. It's more flexible, it's more advanced. It's definitely a tool for professionals or like, Enthusiasts, I think at least like you have to, 
I mean, you can just set up a, a caddy website in just a couple of minutes and not care, you know, but you still have to know how networks work and how your computer works and all this stuff. And you have to know the basics about how caddy works. So I wouldn't say that caddy two is simple. It's definitely a complex tool. And I think that was a big problem or mistake in caddy one was kind of advertising it as like, it's so easy. It's so simple. Everything just works. So we, I stopped doing that because in Caddy 2, yes, that is still mostly the case, but a lot of that complexity is hidden from you when you use the Caddy file, especially, and it's just converted to JSON behind the scenes, which you can look at. You can adapt it to JSON and see what it's really doing. You don't have to write that JSON by hand, though. And so it's still easy to use in that sense, but it's also very like powerful and flexible when you need it. That makes sense. I know you gave a talk at one point where you had actually had a slide where I think it said like simpler is not equal to better. And in that you were talking about the fact that, like you said, you, you sort of pitched Caddy V1 as this is simple to use. And I think a lot of people resonated with that strictly because the first time you used something like Nginx, especially in the past, it was not exactly an easy tool to get up and running with. And having an option where, like you said, you can use a simple Caddy file or something to get it going is is nice. But a lot of things you said kind of reminded me of big web frameworks, like if you look at like Rails or any of those ones out there, where early on people love the simplicity of it, but then when you need to do something more specific or more complex, all of a sudden those tools can almost be a barrier. Yeah, I think in a way we solve that problem for web servers anyway with config adapters. So you can bypass the sugar, the syntactic sugar, and go straight down to the native config. The JSON structure mirrors the the struct types in memory. So like you have a lot of control, um, but you still get the magic. You can still run caddy reverse proxy and get this reverse proxy that runs over HTTPS fully managed certificate. You know, and it's just a command. You don't even need a config file. If you do have a config file, you can just say example.com, hit enter, say your root folder, hit enter, and then say file server, and you're done. It's still magic. Auto HTTPS, production ready, like, you can do that. But if you need more control, you can like dive down into the JSON or in Caddy Adapt and see what you can fiddle with there. There's a lot of knobs and levers. I've seen a couple Go tools. I'm forget there's one that had a more specific name that I'm forgetting. But um I've seen a couple that instead of going the framework route, or I guess you can even see this with ORMs, instead of going like the ORM route of like we build this magical ORM that's simple, I'm gonna put that in air quotes. Instead of doing that, they'll basically generate stuff for you. And it seems like Caddy took a similar route where you can still use the caddy file, but it essentially generates the JSON, which then can be very complex if needed. Like the user might not be able to edit the directly generated JSON. I'm not actually sure on that front, but uh, yeah. the customization is still there, but there's also the simpler option so that it's easier to enter and, and get a feel for how it works. Yeah, exactly. You can even actually give it a caddy or Nginx config and with the Nginx config adapter and it will spit out JSON and run. you can run caddy from your Nginx config. Is that pretty feature complete or have you found some weird edge cases? I don't know that many people use it. I haven't used it myself. Ahmed's done a lot of work on it. I kind of initially started it, just the basics of it, and then he flushed it out a lot more. I think it works well enough, sounds like, for most common Nginx configs. I mean, there's some crazy Nginx configs out there, but I think it'll get you there for 90% of the people who need it. That probably makes sense too, because realistically, if you're in that last 10%, you're probably not looking to change at that point, at least not without some serious work. Yeah. It's just kind of a, hey, look at this. You can do this. This works kind of thing. 
No, that makes sense. Okay, so another thing I wanted to ask you about was whether or not there are any challenges writing software that is sort of expected to run continuously without many updates or anything like that. Like a lot of us will build web servers that get restarted fairly often. And like if a user is connected to a web server, you know, like if we're building a backend or something, we can sort of force updates because if we update the backend, they're stuck using it. Whereas you're dealing with a binary that people install. And like I mentioned earlier, you might have somebody who's still running a really old version and it's expected to sort of keep working. So has that presented challenges to write software like that? Uh, yeah, I have feelings about this. They're very unpopular, but I think ultimately it's your responsibility to keep your software updated. You know, we rely on web browsers every day, all day to do our work, our livelihood, uh, everything that we do basically on our computers. They auto update and no one complains. I mean, no one really complains. And so I think web servers should be able to do that. It's complicated. I could throw a lot of blame around, you know, various parts of systems and mindsets and policies and all this like, philosophies. So I've personally been pushing for Caddy to kind of auto update. I think that's a really cool idea. This idea of a web server that updates itself when there are security patches and, and whatnot. I mean, imagine how different Heartbleed would have been if Apache just kind of auto updated or open SSL shared libraries or whatever component needed to be updated there. That would have been cool. Cad, we come close with Caddy. We have a Caddy upgrade command, so you can manually do an update. And you can, I guess, put that in a cron and auto update. But um, a lot of people use their package managers and they don't. It's tricky because uh, a lot of people will report bugs or issues that are fixed already. Thankfully, it's pretty simple. Yeah, just use the latest version of Caddy. Like we actually fix relevant bugs. <laughs> and we usually fix them pretty quick. And in fact, whenever there's a bug report or a help request, one of the first things we'll do is just ask people to upgrade first. Then we know that we're working on the same code base or looking at the same code. But yeah, it's definitely a challenge. And I, I wish people would update their web servers more often. I can say from my experience, most of my stuff, when it falls out of date, it's usually like some small, like the server I mentioned earlier that basically didn't get updated until it stopped working with the SSL certs. All it was was a all shortener so like it was short paths that would expand into something else and it was just something i threw together really quick it was maybe 200 lines of code and it just been up and running because i didn't do much with it and i you know occasionally would throw some different urls in there but i didn't do much so i do agree with you that auto updating is in an ideal world auto updating that worked would be amazing i can imagine that that's a very complicated task especially like you have enterprise customers and i can imagine that's terrifying for them to think something is changing from out under their feet and they don't have control over it. Yeah, I mean, but their web browsers do. Yeah. And if your web browser borks, then you still can't get anything done, you know? I could just see it being different just because it's on their server. You never really know what's going on. But it is, I don't know, It's in my mind, it's slightly different beats, but it's a similar problem. You mentioned that you could set up a cron job or something. I believe Caddy has like install... I don't remember if it's a script or if it's just a sudo app or app get type install that I believe comes with like systemd setup to automatically run Caddy. Yeah, we have Linux packages for Debian, Fedora, uh, maintained by volunteers in the community. I can't figure that. I don't know how to do that stuff. It's complicated. Have you considered like maybe trying to approach it that way? Is like there's two install options and one automatically like you said, set up a cron job or something to do the auto updates? 
I've proposed this idea to the package maintainers and they hate, they hate this <laughs> idea where you do apt install caddy. And then from that point on caddy kind of updates its own binary or like apt install caddy actually installs a caddy version manager and then, or something which is caddy itself because caddy can upgrade itself. So it's a weird idea. You could do it. I've thought about it. I've kind of like dangled that threat in front of them before <laughs> in like a, in a friendly way, obviously, just like, what can we do to make this happen? But I don't think that's going to happen. So if we see you actually learning to do that stuff on your own, then we'll know that's why you're doing it because your dangling didn't work. Maybe. <laughs> okay. So I guess some other uh, things I'd like to talk about are things like documentation, especially switching from like a V1 to a V2. I guess the first question is, how did you go about making sure documentation is accurate? And then like the second thing is, how do you sort of manage that you know, having both versions of documentation and making sure people are on the right one and that sort of thing? So this is a really good question. This is one of the hardest things that we deal with now that Caddy 2 is like kind of out there and, and stuff. So we work really hard on our documentation. It's definitely not and we accept it's open source we accept contributions it's pretty good though like it, it will get you pretty far but caddy is a complicated piece of software and it touches on a lot of components of technology like the internet and networks and operating systems and system like kernels and there's all sorts of stuff that frankly it has nothing to do with caddy or dns like all these internet technologies, all these computer technologies that have nothing to do with the web server, those are usually what people have questions about. And so we need to be sure that we limit the scope of our documentation to just the web server so things don't get out of hand. We're not trying to document how the internet works or how DNS works or how TLS works, really. Like, those are kind of prerequisites. If you're going to use a web server these days, you kind of have to know all those things. So we show you how to use Caddy. And then... That is itself kind of tricky too, because first of all, each build of Caddy is a little different, different Go version, different Caddy version, different plugins and versions of those, because plugins are statically compiled in, which is really nice. It's actually awesome. But this is another kind of beef I have with like package managers is that they don't handle plugins very well. Like, like they, they expect every build to be exactly the same, but that's not the case with Caddy where you can customize your build. So that's why we have a download page where you can choose the plugins you want. And honestly, if a package manager could just make a get request and download the artifact and just install that in a script, that's all we ask for. But there are reasons, and I've heard all of them, why they don't do that. But anyways, every build is a little different, so that makes it hard to document. If you go to our website, though, you'll see that we, we break it down to how to get caddy with or without plugins, build from source, package managers, those things. We talk about getting started with it. So your first caddy commands, your first configs, we show you that you configure caddy with JSON and that that's kind of a lot of work, especially for simple sites. So then we show you the caddy file. Then we show you the differences. And so we recommend that everyone does our getting started guide to kind of understand how caddy works. And after that, it's really just a matter of what to put in your config. It's a reference question. A lot of people want to jump to examples, which I understand the temptation. I think it's helpful to see some examples. The problem is that a lot of examples that people find are for V1 instead of V2, because they're just using Google and finding random articles on the internet, which we discourage, especially when you're just starting out. 
definitely stick to the official docs and the wiki. We have a wiki, a community wiki on our forum that anyone can edit. And that's where we encourage people to put long form examples and tutorials and things and to explain every piece of it. Like it's tempting to just copy paste configs and, and try and get that to work. We get a lot of support requests that don't make any sense because they don't even know what they're doing. So really encourage, just read the documentation, learn how your tool works. Our reference docs are pretty good, I think. The caddy file, we talk about exactly the syntax and the structure of it and how it works. And then the JSON docs. Now those are interesting because our JSON documentation is dynamically generated. So I wrote some of the worst spaghetti code I've ever written in my life that scans the, the caddy code base. And it's kind of like a Godoc command, but it follows like a JSON struct tag, you know, all the way down. And so if you go to our JSON docs, you can actually click through the JSON structure. And because the structure is modular, you can add, uh, like extend it. We've built the system to support that. So you'll see, you'll see a key and then like the value might be like dot, 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 and you can click that. And you can see a list of possible modules that you can use there, config modules. So how do you handle an HTTP request? Well, there's all these ways. You could proxy it. You could do a static file server. You could encode with it. You could, you could just hard code a response. There are all these things you can do. And so our, our docs try and compensate for that. So they're very interactive, I guess, in that sense, very comprehensive. So it's, it's a complicated problem. The JSON ones that you said were generated from the code, like digging into it, I assume, is that like a command inside of Caddy you can do to bring up a server with that? Or is that generated somewhere else? Kind of. So that code is, I don't even know if it's published. I think part of it is because it's just very specific to Caddy only. The community has contributed like helper plugins for editors so they, like to generate a JSON schema. So there is a Caddy plugin that generates a JSON schema. And that's the thing is we can't just hand you the Caddy JSON schema. I mean, I guess we could for all known plugins in the world, all registered plugins, but that's doesn't matter if your build doesn't have those plugins. So you need to generate a schema for your Caddy build. And that's what this schema generator plugin does. So yeah, you, you can get that. Yeah, I was kind of wondering because you had mentioned that you could build different plugins, which I assume would change the documentation there a little bit as to what options were available. For example, I think like with logs, there's different options for writing logs, whether you're writing to like standard out or somewhere else. And I'd assume if somebody wrote something custom and built it into it, that they might want to like look at those docs or use them in some way. Yeah. Yeah. You probably want to see it in your editor. Okay. So I guess my next question is a little bit different. I think it was around, I'm not sure exactly timing-wise, but there was a time where Caddy was trying to sort of become more sustainable and you had introduced pricing plans and some things like that. I, I know that's not the case now. So can you, I guess, talk a little bit about like where you are now and like, was that part of the V2 sort of involved with that or was that uh, a completely different thing? Yeah, a good question. So I think I would say, I would describe V2 as predominantly unrelated to the funding and sustainability stuff. V2 is a technical goal. And when it became clear we needed to sustain caddies with some funding, we tried a couple things like um, like a sponsorship package and what we called an engineering package, where you could gain access to caddy, you know, expert engineering, 
for your company. Uh, and that with V1 didn't work out too well because people largely saw Caddy V1 as a toy, which isn't super wrong. I mean, you could totally use it in production. Like it was built for production use, but maybe not like for enterprise use and it didn't have a lot of advanced features. And so I think we missed out on that market. Yeah. And then we experimented with shipping custom binaries from our website. So we built this whole thing that would generate a custom build of Caddy for you. Click, 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 download. And those binaries that you downloaded were licensed for non-commercial use unless you paid, basically. So if you're going to use our build server and to take, take advantage of using Caddy in your company, we wanted to see if we could make that sustainable since we knew a lot of companies were automating downloads from our website. And I don't think it was that confusing because a lot of software packages do stuff like this where they'll take an open source project and then like either brand or license something else on top of it. You see this all the time. Like Chrome, for example, is a rebranding of Chromium. And there's a ton of, yeah, there's just a ton of examples in the Java world has something like this. Yeah, I think even VS Code. And anyways, so Caddy's always been open source. It's always been Apache licensed. That has never, ever changed. And it's not going to. We experimented with shipping binaries from our website that were licensed differently for non-commercial use. That was actually more sustainable, probably because it kind of forced a lot of companies into to paying for it. And that helped quite a bit, but it was very confusing to people. And so at some point, um, Bill Kennedy reached out to me from Arden Labs and talked about kind of a partnership and some way to, to make Caddy more positively sustainable, commercially viable. And so uh, Arden funded the development of Caddy 2 for the most part, that first 10 or so months. So I was able to drop the commercial licensing of binaries and just revert everything back to simple open source. So that's kind of where it's at now is it's purely an open source project with no commercial licensing whatsoever. It's sustained purely on sponsorships. So Are those sponsorships like um, GitHub sponsorships or something else? Mostly GitHub. There's a couple, couple that aren't, but. So if somebody was trying to get into open source and they're you know thinking about ways to make it sustainable long-term, do you have any advice for them in that sense? Yeah, so build something that, that people need and use. And I think sponsorship is a great look for companies. So it's a really good look if your company sponsors a project, either because you your company uses it or because your customers use it. That's an awesome look for you if you're like helping your customers like, hey, you all use web servers or you all use this Go package or whatever, or you all use the Go language. And so we're going to sponsor these Go projects to support our customers. Look at how cool we are. I don't think there's, other than just making sponsorships easy and available, especially, so from my understanding, big companies have an easier time funding through organizations or companies that they already have billing set up with. So like, for a company to shell out some money to, for example, Amazon for services or whatever, like that's no problem because, oh, it's for Amazon. It's already approved by the finance department. You know, even if it's going to some sponsorship through Amazon or something, I don't know if that's a thing. 
I just remember that we were asked to like sell Caddy on Amazon because they could get their company to pay for it, no problem. And we actually had a really hard time getting on Amazon. We never did. But for example, GitHub, a lot of companies are configured to pay GitHub for services. And so when you pay GitHub for sponsors, it's all just kind of flows through that same system. So that's better than in that sense, perhaps going through something like Patreon or other kind of random like donation sites because they don't have to go get a whole new financing flow and approvals and things. Changelog News is the best way to keep up with the fast-moving software world. We track, blog, and contextualize the coolest projects, the best practices, and the biggest stories each and every week. Make changelog.com your daily destination or hit the snooze button and subscribe to our weekly newsletter that hits inboxes on Sunday mornings. Join more than 15,000 enthusiastic readers. It'll cost you exactly $0 and you can subscribe right now at changelog.com weekly. So this is just like a personal, I guess, observation. But to me, it's always felt like GitHub sponsorships it always looked and felt like the tool was designed for individuals. And I know like that's something that I'm seeing a lot more in the, like at least in the Go ecosystem, people seem to be looking at what tools they're using and what open source libraries they're using and trying to sponsor, you know, the ones that are making a big impact on them and trying to help in that sense. And they're becoming more conscious of it. And I think they're even building tools around discovering which open source tools you're actually using. But that's still kind of like on an individual level. Is the GitHub sponsorship something you see a lot of businesses using or I guess, like, what are your thoughts on that? We do see some sponsorships come through from businesses on GitHub sponsors, yeah. On GitHub, an organization can be a sponsor to an individual or an organization, I think. And we also see some just representatives from the company use their, I guess, personal or professional GitHub accounts as the channel for that sponsorship. But that's definitely a thing. I would also recommend, too, that other developers looking to get sponsorships. I mean, know your audience for one thing, but also kind of don't underestimate your audience. I think I see a lot of sponsorship profiles that have tiers really low, like a dollar a month, $5 a month. And that's fine. Like it depends what your goals are. If, if you're trying to be full-time sustainable, like I am so, so that I can keep working on Caddy full-time, a dollar a month, $5 a month, isn't really going to cut it to be frank. I mean, it's appreciated, definitely. I appreciate being able to go, you know, grab lunch, for example, once. So there's like one-time donations and recurring. So if we're talking about sustainability, though, typically you'll need professionals or companies to sponsor you at a tier that is like actually sustainable. If you're going to do $5 a month, you're going to need hundreds of sponsors, maybe thousands to be sustainable, depending on where you live. And so... So like I live in a, an area that's kind of expensive. I guess everywhere is kind of expensive right now. <laughs> but uh, I mean, this is not California, but it's still it's still expensive. And so I would need thousands of $5 a month sponsors. 
<laughs> like, or, you know, one, two, $5 a month. It's insane. So my lowest tier is, I think it's $25 a month. And that's like the baseline for sustainability. I still need hundreds of those. But if you can find companies who can sponsor you at a tier that's comparable to the amount that they're benefiting from Caddy or from your project in general, I should say, then that's a much better arrangement. And I can also give those companies like Zero SSL, my executive sponsor, I can give them much more attention if they need it than the $25 a month sponsors who are still helping, but they don't need maybe as much attention. You know, a lot of sponsors don't necessarily need the involvement. Some just want to support the project and see it keep going. They want to keep getting software updates. They want to see the community grow. And those are all valuable things that are worth companies paying for. Yeah, I think that's like the pricing you mentioned is part of what has always made me feel like GitHub sponsorships are like they almost feel like a middle ground between the two in the sense that like when a company is sponsoring, at least in my mind, I'm thinking a thousand dollars a month is not depending on the company, I guess. But like getting up in those realms where hundreds to thousands of dollars a month is really not that outrageous for a company that's using Caddy at very yeah. large scale. But then you have an individual. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, like a startup, a brand new startup, yeah, a thousand a month is is probably steep. But you don't have to start there; you can start lower. But for a large company, you, I mean, a company with dozens of employees, you know, and bigger, like a thousand a month is is pocket change. And your project, I mean, it depends on what the project is, but Caddy is like the core infrastructure for a lot of businesses. Like that's your web services right there. How many customer domains are you serving? Like 10,000 customer domains? Like you probably should be invested in Caddy's like development and, and ongoing maintenance, right? So there's, you just kind of look at those angles and, but I would like to see open source sponsorships kind of de-cheapified. Like it would be nice if the norm wasn't asking a dollar a month, $5 a month. Yeah. I mean, you can, if you want. Like, I think that the hard part there is bit if you're expecting like, individuals who use your library to contribute. I think that's where some people tiered at like a dollar or five dollars is to get a person to, to contribute. And I think sure. part of that stems from, in my mind, GitHub sponsorship looks very similar to like Patreon. And Patreon tends to stem from like YouTubers who like basically they're like, hey, give me five dollars a month and you'll get early access to videos or something, which is very different. And I guess, and it, I guess it depends on your project and your audience. You know, we go developers are probably most of our tools are used by professionals. We're often writing server side code, like either their little home personal projects, in which case I don't care use Caddy for free. But if your business is using it, like it probably is in your business's best interest to support the project with a sponsorship. And in that case, a business supporting a project at a dollar a month, $5 a month is I mean, thank you, but you need your web server to be sustained. And we're talking like full-time professional expert development here. So just things to think about, but it would be nice to kind of de-cheapify it in like the professional realm. I think professionals and, and companies should be able to sustain projects largely. I do like that the community seems to be pushing towards this, figure out what open source you're using and, and make it sustainable. But it it is kind of frustrating that we almost had to get to the point where open source projects get abandoned and people take all sorts of different routes to sort of make it sustainable. And it's kind of challenging in that sense, but I'm hopeful that in the next like 10 years, we'll sort of see a transformation as to how open source is sort of perceived and, and sustained. 
Yeah, that would be nice. All right. So the last question I have before we we can also see if you have an unpopular opinion is what do you see as the next steps for Caddy? You said that you're almost feature complete. So where do you see it going? Uh, yeah. So we're at 2.4 now. In 2.4, we release remote management, like remote admin endpoint. You configure the admin endpoint through which you manage Caddy configuration and, and other kind of administrative things. Uh, you can now set that up to be securely accessed remotely. So over a, a TLS connection that's mutually authenticated. And that's really nice. That lays the groundwork for what I've been working on and designing lately, which is kind of a hosted management UI. This has been kind of a dream since for five or six years where you can log into a website and manage your caddy instances. So I've been seriously designing that and started working on that now the last couple of months. And it's a bit slow going, <laughs> a little slower than designing caddy two, where I could kind of drop caddy one on the floor and like focus all my attention on designing caddy two. Here, I can't just drop caddy two on the floor. I have to keep maintaining it. I have to keep involved in the community and such. So it's going a little slower, but, but the idea is that you'll be able to log into the caddy website and view your instances there, manage their configuration. And there's lots of cool possibilities there that won't get into right here, but we're going to take advantage of these new remote management capabilities. So you can deploy your caddy instances with a, a certain static config with some credentials in it, I guess. And, um, you deploy that and it will just kind of show up in your caddy dashboard you can manage it there. Awesome. I mean, I'm looking forward to seeing that whenever it's released. All right. So we're going to move to the unpopular opinion. I actually think you should probably leave. So the way this usually works is you share an unpopular opinion, preferably in a bite-sized version that they can throw on Twitter and have a poll for. And then they do the poll. And if it's popular, then you have to come back on the show. So, so you're looking for unpopular without everybody okay. hating you. Like I said, all my opinions are unpopular, but I'll give you one that's been on my mind because it keeps coming up all the time. And that is that your server's request per second doesn't matter. In 2021. So I guess, why would you back that up now? So 10, 20 years ago, a lot of people still do this, but like 10, 20 years ago, it was maybe actually relevant to battle web servers and see who could get higher requests per second. You know, oh, this one got a hundred. Oh, I got 150 out of this one. That's, I mean, nowadays those are like pathetic numbers for, for most things. And so I think these days, it's fair to say that your requests per second just don't really matter. Most people are not uh, maxing out 99% of their web server's capacity where the web server is the bottleneck. So remember that when you measure web service performance, you're like at the request per second metric. You're actually looking at the network stack of the kernel. You're looking at wire. If you're doing this remotely, everything over the wire. You're also measuring disk or if, you know, if you're reading a file or if you're proxying, you're measuring all of that. You're measuring uh, the operating system, paging out tasks and like scheduling CPU. And <laughs> there's all these layers and dozens more maybe that 
that I haven't mentioned, but you're not actually measuring your web service performance. And I think the RPS metric is just really silly these days. Like Caddy is not slow. I've gotten over a hundred thousand requests per second using what's the, was it work to WRK? Anyway, I've measured Caddy at over a hundred thousand requests per second on my MacBook. But that doesn't really mean anything if a MacBook isn't serving 100,000. Like, it doesn't need to serve 100,000 requests per second. Most of you don't. I mean, Google is using Go in production. Netflix and, you know, hundreds of other large companies. Cloudflare, Fastly. Like, you can use a Go server in production on your thing, and it's going to be fine. Performance is not our number one goal is basically what I'm saying. I'm assuming at this point you're referring to like just measuring caddy individually versus like measuring caddy with you. When people suggest caddy, I see this all the time. People suggest caddy and then immediately people will be like, how does it compare to Nginx? How does it perform? It's not going to perform as good as a C program uh, if you're talking about requests per second. But if you're talking about things that actually matter like security and reliability and ease of use, it's going to perform a lot better. This reminds me a lot of the issue whenever... Like basically a Hello World server in Go like got slower in one major version bump. I forget which one. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah. And and some people were making a big deal out of it. But at the same time, it was like we're measuring things at an unrealistic point. Like real applications do more than this. Yeah. So you, you, you are referring to though like, like Caddy versus Nginx, not like measuring how your entire web stack actually performs. Um, kind of both. I mean... If you have a database in your application and it's really slow, you're going to get low requests per second. You should probably optimize that. Uh, actually, so Caddy had a performance issue in the early days of V2 with basic auth, HTTP basic auth, where, so you know how that works, where the, the client sends a password over plain text in an HTTP header. The only reason that it's even secure is if it's over TLS, which obviously Caddy does by default. And... With Caddy 2, we changed the way of configuring this. Typically, to configure basic auth, you specify a username and a password in plain text in your config file. And we stopped doing that with Caddy 2. You have to hash the password because that's otherwise, it's basically like storing a plain text password in your database. That's stupid. That's just a bad idea. You're asking for trouble. And so you have to hash it with a secure hash like bcrypt, which is slow. And so that you get these requests coming in with basic auth. And as you know, with basic auth, every HTTP request, even images or whatever uh, page resources, they all have this header attached and they all need this hash computed in order to check the authentication. So actually loading a web page with basic auth in the very, the very first release of V2 is really slow. And yeah, that kind of thing matters. The bottleneck was the web server. We fixed it since then, but that is maybe the only time the metric matters, but like if you're comparing who can serve a file, a static file faster, like no one cares, you know? I mean, I can definitely agree with you that the only time to me that it makes sense to start measuring is when you clearly have a bottleneck and it's leading to performance issues. But I can definitely agree that like the difference between me using Nginx or Caddy in the front of my server is something I'm never going to notice or users never going to notice. Yeah, I mean, if Nginx is getting 100,000 per second and Caddy's getting 75,000 per second, oh, Nginx is clearly better. Oh, okay, that's fine. If you need 100,000 requests per second and no memory safety, 
you go for it. I think the other hard part is I don't think anybody's ever built a web server that's running behind Caddy or really anything. It's, it's rare to build one that doesn't end up slowing it down more than the web server itself. Yeah. Because, I mean, it's the same as that Hello World program. The minute you, like, touch a database, that suddenly slows things down so much that it's no like it's not the same comparison at that point. Yep. All right. I, I suspect you're going to have a popular opinion, so uh, you might have to come back. But we'll wait and see. We have a bunch of podcasts for you to go get on changelog.com. If you need somewhere to start, check out Founders Talk number 77 with Asim Aslam, whom you may remember from the Micro Project. He and Adam Sokoviak sat down for a two-hour marathon discussion that goes deep on Asim's attempt to democratize microservices. Of course, the Galaxy Brain move is to subscribe to our master feed and dry up that podcast app. It's all Changelog shows in one easy place. Check it out at changelog.com master or just search for Changelog Master Feed in your podcast app. You'll find it. Go Time is produced by Jared Santo with music by Breakmaster Cylinder. We are brought to you by awesome sponsors. Thanks to Fastly, LaunchDarkly, and Linode. Next time on Go Time, Matt and John are joined by Brian Borum and Jordan Lewis to talk memory management, and it's a good one. Stay tuned for that. We'll have it ready for you next week. from Shipit number 11 with Charity Majors from Honeycomb. A lot of the time, it is about those mistakes, which think of them like learning opportunities. Yeah. And if you think of them like that, then you optimize for learning. 15 minutes is important. Mm -hmm. You have those guardrails in place so that things like failures don't cascade. I think that's a better mm -hmm. word for it. So, you know, you have circuit breakers and all those fancy things. Mm -hmm. All it means is like errors don't run havoc in your setup. Yeah. And what else would you say about this? Because I know it's a term which is very dear to you. Yeah. Well, I think that people have this image of like, you know, oh, you hire a Google engineer and suddenly your team will get better or something. No, I think that it's pretty clear that any engineer who joins a team will within, you know, three to six months or so will be shipping and performing at the level that that team performs, whether that's up or down. Hmm. The power of the group that the environment that you're in is far more powerful than your own personal knowledge of data structures and algorithms <laughs> you know mm -hmm. and we have this like weird magical belief in the power of individuals but we should spend like way more time just paying attention to the environment in which we all write and build and, and ship our code because the way that people are doing it now is the hard way. You shouldn't have to be a great engineer to, to write code and, and get it out quickly. You know, we, we should build systems that that make it easy for engineers to get their code out quickly. Because I just think we, we have this, we act like great engineers make great teams. And it's exactly the opposite. In fact, it is great teams that make great engineers.